Let's hear what God's Spirit has to say to his church. Psalm 44. To the, to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Salah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have taken spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbours, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we'd forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Let me pray. Our Father, you've given us your word uh, to feed us. And we pray now that we would receive it gladly uh, with hungry hearts. Uh, Father, might we uh, not just read, but inwardly digest uh, all that you have to say to us. Uh, and might it prove fuel uh, for our journey uh, home to Christ's heavenly kingdom. Bless us, therefore, we pray in his name. Amen. I said at the beginning of the service that many of us this morning, I think, are probably here for the first time. Most of our church are in London at the moment, uh, off the back of a wedding. Um, so you may not know that we're only about, we're about 20 months old, I think, uh, as a congregation. Uh, some of you, a handful of you, have been here since the beginning. Some of you have joined the journey en route, and some of you uh, are here for the first time. But let me ask a, a question. How, how do you feel things are going? 
with a church? I realise if you're new, you're not going to answer that. But those of you who've been here a while, is it what you expected? How do you feel about this new church plant? Perhaps others of you who've been involved in new ventures elsewhere, or you can think about the congregations you've been at most recently. Is it what you expected? Is it what you hoped for? Uh, Quite often I'm asked, how's it going? You know, are are you where you wanted to be? And and in all honesty, I don't know how to answer that question. It's not as if there's kind of benchmarking data. After 18 months, you should be this big and 20 months this big. I have no idea. So I don't really know how to answer the question. In many ways, church plants are, are just small churches. There's nothing particularly different about a new church. We're younger, we've got less history, but we're doing exactly the same things as pretty much any faithful church have been doing uh, since, well, since the time of the apostles. But I think Psalm 44 gives us, for want of a better word, an emotion we ought to be feeling. And it's maybe not one we should expect. That the, the emotion that we're meant to be feeling is disappointment. Do you feel that? For those of you who've been around a, a while, do you, a little bit of you. Do you just feel a bit disappointed? Uh, this wedding yesterday, another minister said to me that apparently months 18 to 24 in church plants are meant to be the kind of, essentially the hardest work, the most depressing. Now, I don't know if that's right or not, um, but I'm not talking about that. I'm not sort of, I'm not asking, does it all just feel a bit hard work? Are, are you disappointed because you just want a bit of a rest? What I'm asking, and what I'm suggesting to you, I suppose, is that there is a godly sense of disappointment that God's people are meant to feel. Uh, Laid out for us in Psalm 44. Uh, So what I want to do this morning is is walk through the psalm uh, and first of all understand what what they're saying, what what they're preaching, uh, what they're praying if you like. And then I hope we'll begin to see how, how really relevant it is for us today. So let's dive in. The first eight verses, verses one through eight, uh, the people of God remember, remember God's goodness in the past. They remember God's goodness in the past. Uh, verse 1, O oh God, we've heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. They're looking back. They're not looking around and seeing the great things that are going on in their era. They're remembering what their dad and their granddad told them. And in particular, it seems, they're remembering the time when Israel, God's people, came into the promised land. See that, verse 2? With your own hand, you drove out the nations, but them, that's the fathers, God's people, you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them, God's people, the fathers of the people writing this psalm, them you set free. We don't know when the psalm was written, but it seems at least they're thinking back to the time that having been set free from Egypt in the Exodus, God's people, led by Joshua, came into the the promised land. Do you remember that God, through Moses, came to his people in the land of uh, Egypt when they were slaves and said, I am going to set you free and I am going to take you to a promised land, a land overflowed with milk and honey, a land of rest and blessing. And eventually that came by the next leader, Joshua, leading the people in and driving out those who lived there. Now, their theology is good, verse 3. They understand that it was a a victory that was won by grace alone, we might say. God did it. It wasn't their might. It was God's power. Verse 3, not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own army save them, but your right hand. 
They are theologically on message. Okay, it is God that gave the victory. The land was given to them because he conquered. And children, you, you might know that, that God's people, Israel, they weren't a mighty nation. Uh, it'd be like, uh, it's very hard not to accidentally insult a country here. So, and particularly, I don't know everybody, but a bit like if, if Switzerland was suddenly to become the world power. Okay, tiny nation, not that many people. And God says, right, they are going to be the people that I bless. Israel were the kind of Switzerland okay, of the, the ancient world. A tiny country, a small people, not impressive. No one thought they were going to be, be a big deal. No one expected them to be the people through whom God blessed the world, but God chose them. It wasn't their might, it wasn't their power, it was God's grace. And two things in particular they celebrate, God's power and his presence. The power is there in those victories. They had to fight to get into the land. Now, we haven't got time to talk about it this morning particularly, um, but it's just to say that when the people conquered the land by the sword, it wasn't that there were lots of innocent people happily minding their own business who were suddenly butchered by God's people. No, the people who were already in the land were doing terrible, wicked things. And so God drove them out and gave it to his own people. So God's power is there. But also his presence. Do you see that little phrase at the end of verse 3? The light of your face was with them, for you delighted in them. Now, I don't know exactly what that looked like. It's poetic language. But th- there was a, a real sense that God is with us. They knew that God was delighting in his people. God of the Bible is not one who sits distant in heaven, disinterested, but he takes delight in his people. He rejoices over us. And that's why I think in, in verses 4 through 8, there's a kind of, what you might call it, a kind of liturgy going on, that the king and the people speak to each other. Do you see that it, it moves? Verse 4, uh, one person says, you are my king, O God, one person speaking. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. And then the people speak back. Through you, we push down our foes. Through, you on, uh, through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. Then it goes back to the one person. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. And then the group reply, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. And it all they join together. In God, we boasted continually. Although that's the people speaking in the present, they're not talking about their experience there. As we're about to see, their experience, their present day experience is one of defeat. But I think what's, what's going on there is they're, they're professing what should happen. Okay, you are our king. And the way it's meant to work is it's through you that we push down our foes. They're celebrating that God is their God. He's a powerful God and he is present with his people. And so it climaxes the first section of the psalm with that confession of faith really verse 8 in God we boast continually and we will forever give thanks to your name these people as I'm going to suggest may be disappointed now there might be a better word for that but that's what I'm going with this morning they may be disappointed but they're not doubters they trust their God they believe what they've heard so they remember God's mercy in the past but then in verses 9 through 16, they, they recognize, well, they recognize two things. First of all, they recognize that God seems to have gone. God seems to have gone, to have left them. Look at verse 9. That, that word, but, there's a huge turn in the psalm. It's all going one way. It looks like it's going to be one of those psalms of praise and joy. And suddenly it comes crashing around the corner. 
but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. We know what you used to do, but now you've gone. There's no more power. You're not going out with our army. So verse 10, now in our day, what happens when they go to battle? Verse 10, do you see what's going on? You've made us turn back from the foe. And those who taters have taken spoil, that they're losing battles. Now again, we don't know exactly when it's written, but whoever it is they're fighting is winning. We're meant to be the people of God. We, we've heard what used to happen, but now we're losing. His power has gone, and it seems his presence has gone too. But you have rejected us. No longer does it seem that God is on their side. They feel powerless. They, they, they feel like God is no longer present with them. And it leads to just disastrous results in their present day experience. All the way through verse 11 to 15, there's this list of what disasters, frankly, that have fallen on God's people. Hopefully, at least in English, they all begin with S. Didn't didn't even have to contrive that this morning. They're written down uh, for us. Do you see verse 11? Uh, They're being slaughtered. You made us like sheep for slaughter. Some of them, at least, are being killed because God is no longer fighting on their side. That they're scattered among the nation, verse 11. You've scattered us. Now, there are, towards the end of the the story of the Old Testament, there are various periods when God's people are taken off, captured, and, and taken away. So it may be that that's when this is written, but hard to put it down exactly. But either way, God's people are no longer gathered together en masse, together, but rather have been dispersed. You know what it's like when you're on your own as a Christian, the only one in the office, the only one in your family? You feel weak. But not only have they been scattered, they've ended up in slavery, verse 12. You've sold your people for a trifle. Imagine what it feels like to, to be someone who, who's been told by your dad and your granddad and your great-granddad, God, the God who created the earth, is on our side. He's bound himself to us. He says he's going to be with us. And then you find yourself in slavery in a foreign land. Your brother has just been killed in battle. And how do people treat you? Well, verse 13 and 14, scorn. You made us the taunt of our neighbours, the derision and scorn of those who are around us. Imagine what it felt like for an Israelite to say to, I don't know, an Egyptian or a Syrian. Oh no, our God is the true God. Your gods are powerless, weak, nothing, made up. But our God's real. He's spoken and the world came to be. He rescued us from the Egyptians. He he lives with us in the, the temple or the tabernacle. He's promised that he will bless us and keep us. We sang Psalm 67 earlier about God's blessing on his people that was meant to go out through the nations. It's through us, says the Israelite, whose brother's been killed in battle, who's now in slavery in a foreign country. It's through us that God's going to bless you. It just looks ridiculous. You can imagine the scorn, the teasing, the taunting that would come back. Why on earth would anyone believe in that God now? He is useless and he's gone. He's absent. doesn't exist. And so the end of the list, verse 15, they're covered in shame. My disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler. We know what you used to do in the past, 
But as we look around in the present, what we see is very different. We've heard one thing, we see another. And that contrast between what God's people have heard and what they see it is very important for this psalm. Do you see verse 1? Oh God, we've heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed. But these people, whoever wrote the psalm, they didn't see the exodus. They didn't see God parting the waters. They didn't see the plagues. They didn't see the conquest. We've heard. But now verse uh, 16, it's the sight of the enemy and the avenger that is bringing their shame. There is this tension between what we hear and what we see. If you like, between what the Bible tells us and what our eyes tell us. Apparently, a tribe in New Guinea, there's some Bible translators out in New Guinea, um, and it's a little tribal language, difficult to learn, and eventually the, the Wycliffe Bible translators kind of worked out how to communicate. Uh, and they picked up this expression that the tribesmen had. They had this little expression, he heard his two ears. And, and initially, the, the guys, the, the Bible translators, couldn't work out what this meant. He heard his two ears. And what they discovered was it, it was the villagers' expression for saying that, that they were sort of torn in two directions, as if each ear is talking to them. One opinion in this ear and one in the other one. He heard his two ears. That, that's what's going on for the people of God here. He, he, they're hearing their two ears. They're hearing what God is like, according to their fathers, the scriptures that are being taught to them. But they're also hearing the mocking, the scorn of what's going on in the present. And just to make it worse, more painful, they don't just recognise that God seems to have gone. They recognise that they themselves have been faithful. This is perhaps a surprise. Verses 17 to 22, they recognise they've been faithful. All this, verse 17, has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. That surprise you? But the people are saying to God, look, we've not gone anywhere. We're faithful. Now, they're not saying they're perfect, they're sinless. They've been faithful to the covenant. The covenant is... The Bible's word for our relationship with God. You'll not find that expression, um, having a relationship with God, anywhere in the Bible. But, but endlessly, you'll talk about God making a covenant with his people. It's what Jesus talks about at the Last Supper. This is my blood of the covenant. It's just the Bible's word for God's relationship with his people. And as part of the, the way that covenant worked, at least in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices. You may know this. They, when they sinned, an Israelite would bring a goat or a sheep or a dove, various different sacrifices, and they'd lay their hands on it, and then the animal would die in their place, and the priest would declare that the Israelite was forgiven. So no doubt these people were still sinning and coming for forgiveness, but basically they were being faithful. They hadn't abandoned God. Verse 18, our heart hadn't turned back. There was no sort of, they weren't Pharisees. They weren't the kind of people who turned up at the temple and said the right things and went through the motions but were cold-hearted. No, even in their hearts, they were engaged and they were obedient, verse 18. Our steps haven't departed from your way. Internally and externally, if you like, they were faithful. Yet, still, still, God seemed to have abandoned them. The slaughter, the scattering, the scorn, the slavery, the shame was heaped upon them. They acknowledged that if they'd sinned, it would have been fair enough. That's the, the way the covenant was set up, at least in the, in the old covenant. They acknowledge that 
if they'd turned to another God, decided to abandon Yahweh and go and worship Baal or Dagon, well, fair enough. God had said that if they did that, he would send enemies against them. But here they haven't done it. Yet still, they're being slaughtered. And just to make it even worse, verse 22, they realize that it's for God's sake that they're killed all the day long. It's because they're faithful that they're suffering. So it's, it's not just the confusion that's going through their mind of, well, we're being faithful and yet we're suffering. It's that added level, if you like, of saying, well, it's because we're being faithful that we're suffering. It's for your sake. It's because we haven't abandoned you that you're putting us through this. And, and you see that they're not giving God a get-out-of-jail-free card. That they're not looking up and saying, look, God, we know you can't do anything about it. We know you'd love to stop the enemies. We know you're not in control. We know it's all just because people have got free will and they're disobeying you and your heart is breaking for us. But no, look down at the verses. Verse 19, you have broken us. You, God, have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for slaughter and scattered us among the nations. You have sold it. They know God is still sovereign, still in control of all their suffering, all their misery. They're not simply saying God um, is sitting on powerless and weeping over the plight of his people. They know that somehow mysteriously he is still in control. Now we're going to pause there and just think what I said at the beginning this is, this is this is in many ways a model prayer for us now all the psalms are model prayers so that's not a very insightful point but but I do think it's a, a prayer that to a decent degree fits our context well there's always a danger isn't there from going straight from a situation in the bible to our own time I don't know if you've ever been in sermon series on the, the book of revelation uh, remember the book of revelation begins with seven letters to the churches uh, and the first church is being sexually unfaithful. So the minister stands there and saying, look, you're being sexually unfaithful, congregation. You've got to be pure, otherwise God's going to you know, withdraw his presence from us. And the next week, the church is being faithful. So the minister says, look, you're doing really well, you know, being faithful to God. The next week, it, they're tolerating false teaching. Why are you tolerating false teaching? As if every situation in the Bible mapped exactly onto every church. Well, of course, that's not the case. But I do think here, there are pretty tight links between the experience of those writing the psalm and our experience as Christians today, uh, particularly in the West. We're people, I hope, who do and ought to remember God's mighty works. We, we too are called to look back and remember all that God has done. And yet we've not seen it, have we? Okay, none of us in this room saw Christ's miracles, saw him walk on water, saw him feed the 5,000. None of us, even more significantly, saw Christ die and rise again. We have not seen the mighty salvation that God performed for us. And actually, to a lesser degree, it's also true that very few of us probably have seen God really mightily in an impressive way at work in the church. If you've known a little bit of the, the history of the church, not this local congregation, but just the history of God's church in the, in the United Kingdom, at least, you might know that at various points, it, it just seems that all is going well. A load of people will come to faith. People often call them revivals. Just suddenly, 
A, a whole bunch of people turn back to God. The church wakes up, the prayer meetings break open, everyone's excited to come before the Lord. They want to feed on his word. They spread the gospel of the nations. People get converted. And there are times when, seemingly pretty out of the ordinary, there's this kind of huge upsurge. But if we're absolutely honest, it's not now, is it? It doesn't seem it. But still, our, our role is to look back and say, with the psalmist, verse 8, we will give thanks to your name forever. Uh, those of us, first one, who are followers, are meant to be passing on to our children and telling them about the deeds performed. Not in our day, but the deeds we've read about in scriptures. It's the father's responsibility, ultimately, to to let the next generation know of God's mighty salvation, ultimately the the gospel. We're saved not by being rescued from a country like Egypt through a sea, the Red Sea, and into a physical land, Israel. We're saved by putting our trust in Christ, the Lamb of God who died for our sins, who rose again on the third day. And we tell our children, the next generation, about that, even though we've not seen it. And at the same time as remembering all that God has done, we, it is right, I think, to recognise that it seems to be, a, to use another phrase from the Bible, a day of small things in many ways in the United Kingdom at the moment. Honestly, if there was a Olympic Games of gods at, of God at the moment, would Jesus be on the podium? Would he be one of the, the top three worshipped in England at the moment? No way. I mean, never mind other supposed gods like Allah and all the rest, but just, what about money? Okay, people are far more concerned with living uh, for wealth than they are for Christ pleasure. We give our lives to what makes me happy. I mean, you've heard enough sermons to fill in the blanks, but, but Jesus, he's hardly held up in our nation as the true God above all. And say, so we feel the tension. We know that God is mighty to save, and yet we're not seeing, well, the floodgates open. Uh, there's a guy called John Stevens, who's director of the, the FIC, a uh, huge network of, well, huge for England, big network of evangelical Bible-honoring churches in the UK. And he, he knows various other networks around the place who, who'd want to stand with a, the gospel of the Bible. And his rough estimate is that a church of 100 sees one person come to, to faith every year. That's a statistic. It's rough and ready. But that's what he thinks roughly is going, what's going on in the UK. Now, he's including in that figure children who grow up in the church and then profess faith. Now, if you take those out and then say, well, how many people are being converted from the world outside? Oh, it's a very small. And yet, and yet... We recognise what's going on is not seemingly power, glory and success. We can recognise that more or less we're being faithful. Verses 17 through 22 are not the people of God being arrogant. Look at us, we're great, God. How could you possibly let us down? They're just saying, look, we recognise we're sinners, but we're we're gospel-believing sinners. That's a danger, isn't there, that we're always blind to our own sins. But 
I hope it's fair to say that at least what we're trying to do here is be faithful to God's word. We'll fail in many ways, but we are trying to hold up the, the gospel. We're not perfect, we're forgiven sinners, but we're, we're, we're trying to be faithful. We're trying to honour everything God says in his word. We're trying to live with Christ as Lord. We haven't turned aside and said, well, forget you, Jesus, this isn't working out for us. Now, I said it, it maps roughly onto our situation. It, we are not suffering to the extent that these saints were, and we're not suffering to the extent that many brothers and sisters around the world are. There are places where Bible-trusting, honouring, Jesus-loving Christians really are being enslaved, taken from their families, scattered, imprisoned, and even slaughtered. So we need a bit of realism. There's a danger, isn't there, that we, we, we complain about our situation as Christians in England because it seems that life's harder now than it might have been supposedly 20, 30 years ago. Well, we may get the scorn, we may get the shame, we don't get the slaughter. But it seems that the church at the moment is not particularly powerful. And we're meant, I think, to feel that tension. Does it, I mean, just let me ask you, does it ever cross your mind? You read the Gospels and you read about Jesus and all the mighty things he does. Raising the dead, healing the blind. Lepers walk. Seas are stilled. And you come before him and pray for your sister to be converted and nothing. Does it never cross your mind? Why? We read that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. The Gospel, God's Word, is powerful. That same word that created the universe is the word that comes in the gospel. When the gospel is preached to people, it is mighty. It can bring new life. And you look around and think, but it's not. I I sort of grew up following Liverpool Football Club. I've drifted uh, over the years, but I grew up following Liverpool Football Club uh, because of my granddad. And Liverpool had this genius in the 90s and early 2000s so of, of every football World Cup, seeing which striker, often from an African nation, um, did really well at the World Cup, and then they'd buy him for millions of pounds and get him over to Liverpool, and he'd just be useless. Time after time, they'd buy these huge guys in, and they were, well, what the commentators would always say were, they've gone missing. They looked amazing, but they've just gone missing. Does it feel like that with God sometimes? What we read is that he's amazing, he's astounding, but it seems when we look around that he's gone missing. In that sense, I think it's right that we're disappointed. Now, we're not despairing. These people are not plunging off into utter despair. We're going to abandon you, Lord. We're out of here. You've not turned up as we wanted. We have the right to be blessed, and you haven't blessed us, so we're angry. They're not angry. They're not despairing. They're not even doubting. They're still confessing the true God. We will give thanks to your name forever. Nor are they whining and complaining. They don't think they've got the right to loads of blessings. But, and this is why I couldn't find the right word, but I have, I've gone with disappointment. Find a better one if you can. They just have this sense that God is not presently doing what we've heard he can do. And how do they respond? Verse 23 through 26. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Would you dare say that to God? Wake up, God! What are you doing? Wake up, rouse yourself. Why are you hiding? Rise up. Would you dare to say to God? 
in your prayers? Wake up, God. It's like you're asleep. Now, the same book, Psalms, later on will say that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. So they, they're not literally thinking God is asleep or has disappeared or something. But in their experience, wake up. But these are Holy Spirit-written prayers. These are the prayers given to God's people. That The difference between despair and disappointment, I think, comes in this prayer. In the response of prayer, rather. It is right to want God, God's power to be seen, God's glory to be seen. It's right that we should want Christ to be honoured. Think of Paul walking into Athens and being disturbed as he sees all the other gods being worshipped and not Christ. The altars upset him. We should have that sense of, God, I want you to come and rescue. I'm not going to abandon you if you don't. Save my friends, save my colleagues, save my family. I will keep praising you, but I want you to come and do more. God, wake up. It seems that you're not with us. Your presence and your power seem not to be here. Wake up and come and save. The reaction of these people is not anger, despair, but it is prayer. Come and save. Come and rescue us. We can pray this on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. Rescue them. The saints in North Korea, it seems like you're asleep in North Korea, Father God. Awake. Rescue them. I think we can pray it for our own nation, our own church. We are not powerful. It does not seem that much is going on in Leeds. I spoke with another minister in town who's not evangelical, but he knows the scene relatively well a few months back. Uh, he, he said that he's never, none of the denominations we planted in, in Leeds have ever grown churches at the rate they expected to. New Frontiers, Vineyard, whatever, wherever you are on the evangelical spectrum, he said, look, just none of them. They do in Sheffield, they do in Hull, they do in Manchester, but for some reason in Leeds, it just never happened. Now, I don't know if that's right or not, frankly. In one sense, it doesn't really matter, does it? Our job is to be faithful, you get on with it, and it's not about the spectacular, but we should feel a sense of we want God to do more. Wake, rouse yourself. Come and rescue your people. In Romans 8, Paul applies and takes some of the words from this psalm and applies them to the people of God. We are like sheep to be slaughtered. The Christian's experience is going to be one that is like their master. Jesus himself said, take up your cross and follow me. We're not surprised by suffering, slaughter, scorn, shame. But that doesn't mean we're meant to either enjoy it or pray for God to come and rescue and ultimately, that, that final line, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Christians, yes, we, we are people who want more. We want to see God's power at work again, his, his presence known more powerfully in the congregation. We, we want more, and so we cry out to him. But ultimately, we know that though we are fully saved in, in one sense, we are fully forgiven, we're safe, sat on high, our sins are done and dusted. We know that there is more to come. Redeem us. Ultimately, this is a cry, God, send your son again to conquer the world. Send your son again to to take your people to the promised land. Send your son again so that all might be as it should be. Christ on the throne, sin, suffering, sickness, scorn, slavery, slaughter, gone. And God's people resting at peace forever around his throne. Ultimately, this last line of this psalm is the same prayer as the last line of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus, and rescue. We are not happy here on earth. We will not abandon you. We will thank you continually. We will stand with you, but come and rescue.
We're a small church. We're a new church. There's nothing very impressive. It's not a hugely impressive building. There's, there's nothing shiny and glamorous. But we can be a church who cries to God, awake, come and save your people. And God's way, so often in the Bible, in church history, it is to work through weakness. He's not found where the glory is, but he's found in weakness. Ultimately, where was God most powerful? Well, at the cross, where his son took on flesh and was crucified. That is the moment Jesus described as him being glorified. And yet he's naked, scorned, being slaughtered, and yet rescuing the world. When God's power comes, it's not in lightning bolts and angels appearing. But when he comes in power, it is through the, the faithful prayers of the saints. The preaching of the gospel looks so unimpressive. Christians trying to stand with God's word and cry out to him. And God comes through the weak, shameful things and does mighty things. Let's be a church that stays and cries, awake, come and redeem. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your many blessings to us. We do look back and rejoice that you have saved us. We rejoice that all our sin is buried at the bottom of the ocean. We rejoice and say with the psalmists that we will give thanks to your name forever. But we do pray that you would awake and rescue and redeem in Leeds again. We pray for many to come to Christ and bow the knee before him. We pray that Christ and his people would not be scorned and shamed but would be honoured here and to the ends of the earth. We pray for our brothers and sisters who really are being slaughtered. Even now, those who are in prison, torn from their families. Father, strengthen them, but ultimately come, Lord Jesus. Return to your world and set things to right. Give us, we pray, by the power of your spirit, the faith to stand with you until that day comes. For we ask in your own name. Amen.